America and South America together, with the exception of the Panama Canal there, but still, it's just a big island. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. And this word judgment has more to do with truth than anything. Let's meet at the court of absolute truth. There's another verse in the Bible that says that truth has stumbled in the street, and we've certainly seen that in our culture, probably more so in the last five or ten years than any of us could ever imagine. People my age, you know, in their, in their upper 30s, people my age who... Don't laugh. Some of you are heading that way, right? That's right. You know, people that are my age grew up thinking, well, there's some absolute truths. You just don't do this. You don't do that. You don't do the other. And, and we stood by those truths. And now those truths are irrelevant to a whole new generation or several generations, people in leadership. But God is saying, let's meet at the judgment seat of absolute truth. Let me speak a truth into your life is what God is saying. And hey, if you want to get right with God, if you want to have revival break out in your heart, then you sit before God in your quiet time. And you say, God, I want to sit before the throne of absolute truth. What is the truth of my situation right now? The one I'm upset about, complaining about, mad about, distraught about, hurt about, whatever it is that's happened to you. God, what is the absolute truth in this situation? And I promise you, if you sit still long enough, God will say, well, I'm here with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what you'll hear him say. In some form, in some sentence, in some phrase, he's going to come through and say, I'm here. Right? Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. He says, I want to hear what you have to say. I really do. And then we'll meet at this judgment seat, and I will bring absolute truth into your presence. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to service? Now, we're going to find out who this person is in just a few more chapters, but I'm going to give you a hint. His name is Cyrus the Great, okay? Cyrus the Great. Isaiah is prophesying. This, this word was written 100 years before Cyrus was even born. This is one of those things that proves the Bible is true through and through, is that prophecy, prophecy is one of the greatest things that proves the Bible is true. Isaiah wrote this and prophesied it when he lived and saying 100 years from now, that's not what he said, but what he's saying is a, in our terms, when we look backwards at it, a hundred and something years from now, Cyrus the Great will be raised up. And God says, I'm going to pick him out and I'm going to use him to set my people free. And we find in 539 B.C., this, the Edict of Cyrus is called, the Word of Cyrus, the Facebook post of Cyrus, right? The Instagram of Cyrus, right? He posted and said, let the Jews go free. Let them go back to their homeland. And let's send them some money to rebuild their town. Now, that happened in 539 B.C. We know that. That's a historical fact. And here Isaiah is saying, I've already raised somebody up. Yeah, you're in trouble. Yeah, you're in captivity. Yeah, things are bad. But I've raised somebody up. It's going to be a hundred and something years from now. But I've raised somebody up. That, that ought to give all of us hope. Now, a hundred years from now, most of us will be with Jesus, right? Yeah. Right? right? In all likelihood, most of us will be with Jesus. Hallelujah, right? Amen. right? Do you want to live another hundred years in this body? <laughs> no, right? But it's the hope that a hundred years from now, God is going to set his people free. 
And the hope for us in America as we look, as we Christians look on America and go, oh my gosh, where's the church going? Where's Christianity going? It's bad. God may have already raised somebody up for 150 years from now to restore Christianity in America. What we have to hope in is that God is not asleep at the wheel. Because sometimes we think that, right? We think God's asleep at the wheel. He's not seeing what's going on. He's oblivious to our plight and our situation. You know, there was a popular song that came out years ago, Jesus Take the Wheel, right? right Jesus Take the Wheel. And uh, <clears throat> then somebody came out with, a, with another one and said, you know, Jesus drive the car, right? And then somebody added one on top of that, you know, give Jesus the keys, right? Here's what I would say, just stop driving. Yeah, just stop driving. Just sit in the presence of God and stop trying to drive your life to a destination that God doesn't want you to go to. Just be still and know that I am God. And that I've raised up Osiris the Great for 100 years from now who's going to lead some people out of captivity. Now, if, if, God can, if God can tell Isaiah that in 100 years from now it happens, guess what he can do in your life a day from now? Or a week from now. Or a year from now. He may have already raised someone up just for you to solve the problem you have today. But it may take a year for that person to come into your life. Because the problem's not ready to be solved yet. There are some people that have the problem. And that's none of us in this room. Right? None of us have problems. But there are some people that have a problem that have to be softened up first before the problem can be solved. Have you ever noticed that? You have, listen, you have to be Jesus to them for a week, a year, a month, or a decade, or 30 years, before they're softened up enough to see the Jesus in you, or the Jesus in anybody else, for that matter. People come to Christ in different times and ways and fashions that we can't I'm not God, I'm not going to judge how people come to Christ, right? None of us should. People come to Christ when they're ready to come to Christ. Our job is to be Jesus in front of them as long as we can and as faithfully as we can so that when they are ready to come to Christ, they go, you know, I think I've seen Jesus in Melissa. I've been watching her for six years now at work and I see her out like Christ all the time. I think I'm going to ask her, what is that about? They're softened up. Who has stirred up one from the east? Cyrus, right? Calling him in righteousness to his service. His hand, he hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns into dust with his sword, the windblown shaft with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled for. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. Now, we do know from the historical accounts that Cyrus the Great just mowed down, just walked into towns and people fell over and said, okay, take our town. There was no battles in some places because God said this is how it's going to be. God says, I, the Lord, I am the first and I am the last. I am he. That sounds like he 
said to uh, Moses, I am that I am, right? Which another way of saying that would be, I will be who I will be. Probably a better translation of the Hebrew. The islands have seen it and feared. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. Each helps the other and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman encourages the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer spurs on him who strikes the anvil. He says of his welding, it is good. He nails down the idol so it will not topple. Now, those couple of verses is talking about the heathen who say, we're going to make our own idols. We're going to worship who we want to and the way we want to. And, and look, look what a good job we've done. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. Okay, John 14, 14 says what? John 14, 14, 15. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. A servant knows not what the father does, but a friend does. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you to do. Jesus calls us friends. Here, God is saying, Abraham was my friend, and you and I are friends with God now, just like Abraham was. I took you from the ends of the earth, from the farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and made you not, and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. What's the one phrase Jesus said to his disciples more than anything else? Fear not, fear not. Supposedly, somebody's counted their 365 fear knots in the Bible. I've not done that research myself, but one for every day of the year. It would be like God to do that. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Now, here's this great passage. Eight I wills. Eight I wills that will help you. We've been talking this morning. People have been praying this morning for people who are hurting and sick and discouraged. God says, I will. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. So the first thing God says is I will strengthen you and help you. If you cry out to God and say I need to be strengthened, I need your help, he will. What father, what father, if his child or grandchild or great-grandchild came to him and said, I need whatever it is, would look at them and say, I know, go tell your mother, go tell your grandmother, go talk to your teacher, go tell the policeman. What good father or good mother would do that? God says, I'm your good father. I will help you. And remember, when God helps us, it's the way he wants to help. If you ask God's help, make sure you ask for his help, not what you think God ought to help you with. Right? Because if God helps you in the way you want you to be helped, it, it might turn out bad. Because you're not God. Right? Right? Only God knows what's best for everybody in every situation. I don't. You don't. Nobody knows. God does. So when you ask God for help, say, God, I want your help for me in this situation. And don't be surprised if it's completely opposite of what you were wanting. Right? You were wanting biscuits from God, right? Homemade biscuits, scratch, cathead biscuits, we call them, down in South Georgia. But God gives you pancakes instead because he knows you need pancakes and not biscuits. Does that make sense? So ask God for the help that he wants to give you. Secondly, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He's upholding you with his righteous right hand. He's holding you up with his righteous right hand, his, his truth-filled right hand, right? I will hold you with my right hand. Isn't that beautiful? 
You're walking along, God says, let's hold hands. Right? When my grandchildren were way small, every time we would walk across the street or a parking lot, I would say, what? You know, I'd say, what, what? Hold hands, right? Hold hands. And they would grab my hands and, you know, we'd walk across the parking lot. Ellie Gray still lets me do it every now and then at 11. And that's God all the time with us. Here, hold my hand. We're going to walk across this dangerous intersection. We're going to walk across this trouble you're having in your life right now. But I want you to hold my hand. Because if you don't hold God's hand, you're all running around kind of thing. You might get in trouble. Hold his hand. I will uphold you by my righteous hand. Isn't that beautiful? This is not a mean God, an angry God with a two-by-four in his hand beating you up and saying, walk across the road. Do right. Straighten up. No, this is a God who says, here, take my hand and I'll walk with you. And if you'll go at my pace, we'll arrive at the right time. Right? All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. It's amazing the rage that people have toward one another. I mean, good, nice people now are saying some of those horrible things to the people they love. It's a sign of the time, I'm, I'm guessing. But it just amazes me how people will jump to conclusions, how they'll accuse, and, and, and they'll say horrible things. And, and you look at them and go, where did that come from? There's just a rage in society right now. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. You know, God makes, he prepares a, he prepares a banquet in the presence of our enemies. And he says right here, they will search, you will search for your enemies, but you won't find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all, for I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand. Here is God taking us by the hand. And says to you, do not fear. I will help you. Do not be afraid. That's the third time. I will help you. That's the third I will. Do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel. For I myself will help you, declares the Lord. Now, is God calling Jacob and Israel a name when he calls them a worm? If I called you a worm, Heather, would you take offense to that? Not so much. I don't know. You might. <laughs> Caleb would probably jump all over me over here. Right? You worms, right? No, he's not trying to offend them by using the word worm. Listen, God will never call you a name. You may call somebody else a name, and somebody else may call you a name. You may call somebody a name in your head because you don't want to say it out loud. <laughs> right? Right, right? But God will never call you a name other than your name. Jim. Mary. Sue. Millie. He's going to call you by your name. He's not, he's not offending them here. He's saying, you see yourself as a worm. That's what he's saying. You see yourself as a worm, but you don't realize how important you are. You are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood to declare the praises of him who <coughs> called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're not a worm. You think you're a worm. And the church has done a real good job of convincing Christians they're worms. I'm here to tell you you're not fish bait. Not a one of you in here are fish bait. You're not worms. If you think you're a worm, you're wrong. If you think you're a worm, you're lying to yourself. If you think you're a worm, 
You're not listening to what God's saying about you. Right? If you think you're worrying, you've taken His name in vain. You're a child of the Most High God. You're a child of the Most High God. You're not a worm. Do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord. He's not sending somebody else to help. Have you ever asked for somebody for help and they sent somebody else to help? And they weren't quite as good as the person you wanted to help? So you call 911 and you ask for a paramedic, EMT, right? And they send me, right? Who's squeamish around blood? I can't even pull, I couldn't even pull my children's teeth or my grandchildren's teeth. Just sends me into a, you know, I don't know what, but makes my legs weak. You don't want me showing up to try to patch you up. God says, I will help you. We're not sending in the backup. I will help you. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I will, this is the fourth one, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. Okay. How many of y'all know what a threshing sledge is? Okay, so you do? That's awesome. What is it? You don't know? <laughs> you raised your hand, man. So when you cut the wheat down and it laid it down, you had to beat the chaff and the seed and everything. You had to separate it out. And so they made this contraption. Think about a log with stone and metal and everything driven into the log. And you rolled it over like a rolling pin you rolled it over and it separated the material out and so he's saying what he's saying is I'm making you like a giant rolling pin with stone and metal and stuff stuck inside there new and sharp with many teeth you will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff you will winnow them the wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away blowing away the bad stuff but you will rejoice in the Lord and the glory of the Holy One of Israel. In other words, you'll give praise because of what God's done in your life. He's going to make you able to separate the good from the bad. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Now, it's not talking so much about real water here, but spiritual water. Okay, that's, the, that's the sense here. Look what it says. I will make rivers flow on barren heights. What does John 7, 37 say? What does John 7, 37 say? Anybody? Come on, yeah, yeah. I will, I will bring forth springs, right? Living springs welling up within you, right? And he's referring to whom? The Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. I will make rivers flow on barren heights. I will raise up the Holy Spirit within you. And springs within the valley. That's the fifth I will. The sixth I will. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. He did that when he gave the Holy Spirit. See the prophecy here that will take place 2,000 years later? Excuse me, 600 years later. I will put in the desert the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, olive. I will set pines in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together. So that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. 
that the Holy One of Israel has created it. Now, why do you list all those trees right there? Seven trees. What's the number seven stand for? Completion, perfection, absolutely. He gives us seven different trees. What were trees used for back in the day? Same thing they're used for today. What are trees used for today? To build, to make houses, right? What else? Fence, fortress, what else? Furniture, the cross, food, paper. What? Fire. Fire. Hello, fire. Right? Let's get warm, right? God is saying, I'm planning all this for you. I'm planning all this for you. List all these trees. What's in the last chapter of the book of Revelation? It says, in a river flow from the throne of God down between the trees. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And they shall not wither and shall produce fruit in their season. Amen? Trees. Trees. God lists trees. Right in the middle of this whole story, he lists seven kinds of trees. So that the people may see and know and may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. He said, I'm going to give people a reason to praise my name. Not just the people in Israel, but all the people around. So, present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments about what's going on in your life, says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are God's little G. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. He who chooses you is detestable. He said, so bring your idols in. Bring your idols in. Let them talk. Let them prophesy the future. Let them say what's going to happen like I'm telling you Cyrus is coming in over 100 years from now. Bring them in. Let's have a chat with them. What can they do? And I would say that any other God, any other ruler, of any, uh, any other creator, of any other faith, religion, I dare them to come say the same thing too. Let Confucius come predict the future. Let Buddha come predict the future. Right? Let them come predict the future. They can't do it. And God is saying here, I, I created everything. What's up with that? And why do you want to worship an idol that you make? Why worship an idol? Let them come and state their case. And then let's have a conversation. Because they can't do it. I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes. One from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if they were a potter treading on clay. Who told of this from the beginning so we could know, or beforehand so we could say he was right. No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good tidings. I look, but there is no one among them to give counsel, no one to give answer when I ask them. 
See, they're all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. So if there's confusion in your life, I want to ask you to do something. I want you to ask you to consider, are you listening to an idol? Or are you listening to God? If there's confusion in your life, there may be a good chance that you're listening to an idol that you've made, something you've created in your mind and in your heart that is not from God and is directing you down the wrong path. God is saying here, I'm not the author of this confusion in your life. That's coming from somewhere else. Somewhere else. And I would say many times in our life, the confusion that we face is because we're listening to our own idols. Where do our idols come from? Four things in our clothes. Idols come from our own insecurity. Idols come from our own insecurity. Something's not right in our life, so we blame everyone else for what's going on in our own lives. We have this insecurity. And insecurities can come from anywhere at any time in our lives. We're all subject to that. But when we give in to the insecurity, right? when we give in to it, then we become an idol worshiper. We worship our insecurity. Or we worship what we compensate for insecurity. So you may be insecure, so you, you start doing drugs. Right? You may be insecure, so you separate yourself from society. There, there are many ways we create idols to deal with our insecurities. Idols can come from disappointments in life. Hey, life is full of disappointments. Get used to it, right? If you haven't figured that out by now, there's a problem. Life is full of disappointments because life happens. And you can't control anything but you. And sometimes you can't even control you. You ever notice that? You can't control your husband, your wife, your dog, your frog, your hog. You just, there's no controlling other things. You can control what you do. And what you think and how you feel. And sometimes you can't even do that. Because of life. But disappointments. You can create idols because of a disappointment here. I'm going to create an idol over here. Where do idols come from? They come from the offenses of others. Somebody offends us. And we get a chip on our shoulder. And we create an idol. And the idol is we think we're God now. We're going to. We're going to make sure they pay for offending us, right? Bitterness, anger, rage, all those things can come from that. Those are all idols. Anger is an idol. Rage is an idol. Things we hang on to because we feel like it'll make us whole. And then the fourth thing where idols come from is legalism. Legalism. And a legalist or religious spirit is somebody who thinks they know everything about you and they know what's best for you all the time. And if you just listen to them, they'll be right. And then you'll be right, right? Jesus despised legalism. He despised religion, uh, that religious spirit. He, he despised it. But sometimes we get up on our high horse and we want to tell the world what they ought to do. And we create an idol when we do that. And the idol is us. We wor- begin worshiping ourselves, right? So insecurities, disappointments, offenses, and legalism, that's where idols come from. So this morning, I want to ask you to put your idols down. 
I want to ask you to just put your idols down for just a moment, whatever they are, whatever you're hanging on to that's not of God. And when we take communion in just a minute, just set your idols down for just a minute and, and, take, up, and take up who we really worship in the, in the essence of the Lord's Supper here. That's what he's saying. Take me into yourself. That's what we're doing, the, the body and the bread of Jesus, the body and blood of Jesus. We're taking it into ourselves saying, I receive you, Jesus. I receive you. So this morning, make a little room for Jesus in the midst of your idols, okay? Just separate them out and say, Jesus, I want you to come right here and let him help you take care of those idols. Because he didn't like them any more than you like them. And he knows that. And he wants to come in and, and clean the house if you'll let him. Will you let him? So whatever it is this morning you're holding on to, hanging on to, thinking it's the answer. If it's not Jesus, it's not the answer. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for Isaiah and the prophecy. Thank you that 100 years from now, you've, you've got it worked out. And so thank you for that. Father, we right now just open our arms and our hands and we release, we, 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 we part our idols for a moment and we ask you as we take the Lord's Supper. We ask you, we plead with you just to come and, and, and sit among our idols and to help us to get rid of them. That it might bring glory to you. And it might help us and refresh us and encourage us and comfort us and strengthen us. So come, Lord Jesus, have your way with us. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way with us this morning.